and welcome to A Flat Pack History of Sweden, the podcast that holds your hand on the bumpy journey through Swedish history. I'm Elsa. And I'm Chris, and this is a special episode. Normally we start each episode by saying that we go through Swedish history chronologically, which is what we indeed do most of the time, but every so often we take a break from that and do a special episode on a particular topic that lies outside of our timeline, the one that we normally proceed along. Mm-hmm. We've done four of these special episodes so far, and they've been prompted by interesting historical things that we've seen around us, or by anniversaries, or even because we've been asked to cover a specific topic once. We thought it was time for another one of these special episodes, and this time it was actually prompted by us falling into a research wormhole or a rabbit hole on Wikipedia, so to speak. <laughs> Yes, if you remember, we were talking about medieval Swedish games and pastimes, and we ended up talking about tug of war, and I made a call out to the Olympic Committee to bring back tug of war as an Olympic sport. In the research for that episode, we ended up reading about the Swedish tug of war team in the Olympics of 1912, And that was what led us down this rabbit hole or or wormhole, like Chris said, of looking up all sorts of fun and unusual facts about Sweden and the early Olympics. And we thought that there were so many of these odd and interesting little tidbits that why not make an entire special episode about it? Yeah, so we're taking a break from the mayhem of early 14th century Swedish politics and royalty drama to instead devote an entire episode to interesting facts and trivia about Sweden in the early Olympics. Um, But this isn't really a break, I guess, as this will come out in one of those gap weekends. So don't worry, we'll be back to the 1300s in a week's time. And this episode won't have a particular structure. It's more of a collection of events and stories and interesting biographies with one thing in common, that they are Swedish or took place in Sweden and has to do with the Olympics before the Second World War. But first things first, we have a fitting Swedish phrase of the week, don't we? We do. Since this week is a bit sports-themed, we thought the Swedish phrase of the week should be bättre fly än illa fäkta. And that means better to escape than fence badly, or better run away than fence badly. Exactly, and it means that it is better to avoid a situation then go into it and do something badly or poorly. Uh, So you could, for example, say that my friend asked me if I wanted to look after his cat for the weekend, but since I know that cat hates me and would just lash out at me, I said no because I felt it was better to run away than fence badly. Excellent, very practical phrase, I think. But speaking of fencing, let's start with our first few random facts about Sweden and the Olympics, because fencing is a sport that Sweden has a couple of Olympic medals in, isn't it? It is. Uh, We won bronze in Paris 1924, team silver in Berlin 36, team bronze in London 48, team silver in Helsinki 52, and then we really hit our stride, team gold in Montreal 1976, and an individual gold in Moscow four years later, a 1980 Yuan Ham and and then a silver won by Björn Wegge in Los Angeles in 84. 
also as a fencer, as I'm pretty sure we've mentioned a couple of times in the podcast so far, we must have done in the medieval trivia episode when we mentioned yeah. fencing. Um, but it, so it's not like you have a guru type knowledge of fencing in uh, Swedish Olympics. No, no, and I did actually have to look up those those early medals. I I didn't know those just off by heart. But some of the more recent ones, you've met them, haven't you? I have. Uh, I've met uh, some of the fencers from the team that won gold in Montreal in 1976. And uh, yeah, so so that generation of, of fencers, because obviously they're still around and a lot of them are, are coaches or referees or just around in the world of, of Swedish fencing. So and they're all very nice. But they can stab you if you offend them. <laughs> yeah. Olympic level stabbing. Yeah. Effective pinpoint stabbing. So getting back to the episode proper, I think our listeners are pretty familiar with the history of the Olympics in very vague terms. And if you want to learn more about that, there's a ton of books and documentaries and there has to be podcasts to listen to about all of the history of the Olympics. So we're not going to really go into too much detail here other than to say that the Olympic Games have a history dating all the way back to ancient Greece, but were revived in the modern era in the late 1800s, much due to the work of a French baron called Pierre de Coubertin. Uh, the first modern Olympic Games were held in Athens in 1896, and there's been one every four years ever since, apart from in 1916, 1940, and 1944, because apparently the world was busy doing other things at that point. So I've heard... Yeah, exactly. So we've heard. And nowadays, we're used to there being a Summer Olympics every four years, apart from Corona times, and a Winter Olympics every four years, with the cycles interlapping. So there's two years between each one. That didn't actually start until 1924. So for the first six Olympics, the winter sports didn't have their own event or games. It was just merged with the summer one and didn't include as many sports. Nowhere near as many as there are today. We should also say this is the day before we're recording this, the yeah. day before the start of the next uh, or the past Winter Olympics <laughs> or the current Winter Olympics, depending when we exactly release this. Yeah, so well exciting. done team that won the most medals. Yeah. And congratulations, great second team for your excellent efforts. Apart from that time where that guy did the really funny thing. That was great, wasn't it? I know it's really hard to tell the future that's why we're a history podcast because you know what happens in the past another thing that's worth keeping in mind when we talk about the early olympics is that they were different from the ones we know of today obviously in many ways we're talking about money infrastructure and so on but perhaps most notably was the fact that everyone who competed were amateurs. Professional sports weren't really a thing in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. So all these events and people that we're talking about today, they weren't professional in the way of we think of sports today. These people that we're talking about had ordinary jobs and being in the Olympics was something they did in their spare time, which is quite different to what it's like in a lot of the Olympic sports today. It really is, and in a way it almost makes them even more fascinating. The fact that they did all of this and still kept a day-to-day wage-earning job going. Of course, there were some noble or rich people who competed too in all sorts of sports. Uh, uh, I can think of the 
current king of Norway competing in three Olympics in sailing, for example. So he didn't have to keep a wage-earning job on the side, so to say. So there's been an Olympics every four years since 1896, except for during the World Wars. Sweden has actually competed in every single one of those, except one. There were no Swedish competitors in the 1904 Olympics in St. Louis. From what I read about it, the different sports associations thought it was too expensive to send athletes all the way across the Atlantic in the early 1900s, And that Olympics was sort of swallowed up by the World Fair that was going on at the same time anyway. Where? In St. Louis. Oh, okay. Yeah, so they had two huge events on in the same city at the same time. And yeah, a lot of uh, these uh, books about the early Olympics, the 1904 Olympics, there weren't a lot of competitors from, from Europe. And yeah, the games were a bit sort of swallowed up by the World Fair going on at the same time. But there has been Swedish competitors in every single Winter Olympics. Uh, For the first two Olympics, so in 1896 and 1900, Sweden and Norway were in a personal royal union. Just like in the current timeline at the moment, for the very first time with uh, Magnus. Yeah, and then the same thing happened again in uh, in the 1800s and early 1900s. So uh, for those two games, Sweden and Norway had the same king and shared defense and foreign policy. But we still competed separately in those two Olympics. I guess you can compare it to how England and Scotland are both in the United Kingdom, but compete with separate football teams in international competitions. And then Norway became fully independent in 1905 and has since obviously competed as uh, their own country and been our main rival in every Winter Olympics when it comes to cross-country skiing. Uh, If you're in Sweden, it's all about beating the Norwegians in uh, cross-country skiing. Which doesn't happen as often as uh, the Swedes would like. Oh, you're right. (laughs) That made me really sad now. (laughs) So let's start from the very beginning with that very first Olympics in 1896 and Sweden's very first Olympian. And he actually had no competition because Sweden only sent one person to the Olympics in Athens in 1896. And that person's name was Henrik Hörberg. There were no women at all in that Olympics, by the way, so it wasn't just that Sweden didn't decide to send any, they weren't allowed. And Sweden probably didn't send more men to the Olympics because, well, first of all, there was no Swedish Olympic Committee or even a national sports organisation to sort of be the overarching managing body. And secondly... Sweden didn't seem to have caught on to the idea of the Olympics, really. I mean, it was a new thing. Maybe they wanted to sit back and see if it caught on or if it was just a short-lived craze. Well, after all, there were only nine sports, uh, 43 events in nine sports, and only 14 countries sent anyone. So Sweden was one of them, but one of those 14 had only sent one person. So there was only uh, uh, 241 people who went. So yeah, it wasn't like 
they were missing out on this huge thing. It was just very new. And when it came to Sweden in particular with these games, the lack of interest was so noticeable in the fact that Henrik Froberg even had to pay for his own trip to the games. In the end, a local sports club in Stockholm stepped in and paid for half of it, but he still had to fork out 300 kroner himself, which in today's money is 22,523 kroner, according to a lovely conversion yeah. website that also found. Um, but that's roughly 2,150 euros or $2,400, which is uh, you know, it's a decent amount of money. And considering Henrik Hörber was a medical student here in Stockholm at the times he went to the games, he probably didn't have too much money hanging around himself. He did make the most of it once he got there, though. He competed in no less than five separate events, mainly in athletics or track and field, as I know you call it in the US. He came fourth in the high jump, sixth in the long jump, seventh in the discus throw and he ran the 100 meter race but there's no record of what place he came in and as if that wasn't enough he also did a gymnastics event the pommel horse again with no recorded place on the scoreboard maybe he was so bad they didn't give him any points so he didn't even qualify for the scoreboard or maybe records have been lost in uh Nah. The time period since. I'm going to imagine he tried to run up to the pommel horse and just missed it and <laughs> fell over onto the floor. <laughs> Whether or not he did that, it's still quite incredible. You would never have someone who competes in so many events uh, today. To give an indication of just how much sports have developed, though, over the course of 130 years, Henry Kruber came fourth in the high jump, with a jump that measured a meter 60 centimeters. In the Olympics in Tokyo, Wu Sang-hyok, uh, pardon my pronunciation there, from South Korea, also came fourth, but he jumped 2 meters 35 centimeters. So that's more than half a meter higher for the same place in the Olympics. Just goes to show the different conditions and ability to practice. And also in terms of the high jump, they use a completely different technique today. So true, there's a lot that's changed in over 120 years. Henrik Hörberg, nonetheless, seems to have been pleased with his achievements, judging by newspaper interviews from the time. And perhaps it was partly thanks to his competing that the Olympics got a foot in the door in the minds of Swedes overall. And by the time the next Olympics rolled around, Sweden sent 10 men to Paris. Oh, well, that's a tenfold increase. It is. And for Huerba himself, the journey went in a more tragic direction, unfortunately. He was 21 years old when he competed in the Olympics, and when he came back to Sweden, he continued his medical studies and became a doctor. In the summer of 1905, nine years after his Olympic adventure, he was busy studying for a medical specialisation, but had taken a break to go to Helsingør in Denmark with his fiancée to celebrate their engagement. They were staying at the Hotel Marian List right by the beach, and one day Henrik went to dive into the sea, but must have misjudged the depth because he hit his head on the bottom of the sea and broke his neck and died at the age of 30. That is very sad indeed. Uh, but he will always have the honour of being our very first man to be an Olympian. 
It would, however, take a while before Sweden actually won any gold medals. That didn't happen until 1908. But then again, in that games, we really struck gold. Fritjof Mortensen won in wrestling. Erik Lemming won javelin. Ulrik Salkov won figure skating, which again is now a winter event, but was then in the summer games. Jalma Jonsson won in dive, and Oskar Svan won in deer shooting. So that's going from zero to five gold medals in one go. Incidentally, that Olympics didn't start off very well, as the organizers either didn't have or forgot to fly the Swedish flag above the stadium at the opening ceremony, so no Swedish athletes took part in the ceremony. Yeah, so the 10 Swedish athletes just sat at home or just didn't bother going into the stadium. Well, there's no flag, we're not going. So this is a really good success for Sweden. Five of the 10 people won gold medals, mm. so that's really good. We'll come back to Oskar Svan, the shooter, uh, a bit later, and we'll talk a bit more about the excellent Olympic deer shooting event. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's also worth mentioning that Sweden didn't have to wait very long for its first gold at the Winter Olympics uh, because Yilis Grafström won gold in figure skating in the very first Winter Games in 1924. Although if you sort of backtrack and take the first figure skating as a winter gold, he was sort of second. So it depends how you count. Well, we've always been good in winter sports and winter events. Uh, I guess we're aided by the fact that we're a naturally cold and snowy country. But yes, 1908 was a good games for Sweden. Not only did we win several gold medals, but it was also the first games that Swedish women competed in and where we have our first Swedish woman medalist. Indeed, Märta Alderstråler, born on the 16th of June 1868, was 40 years old at the time, which is quite a lot older than a lot of uh, modern-day Olympians in most sports, and she won bronze in the singles tennis. Hot on her heels was another Swede, Elsa Wallenberg, who came fourth. Adlerstråler was a real trailblazer in a time when women's sports were viewed with great cultural and social suspicion. She was not only an accomplished tennis player, she also played bandy, a sort of version of ice hockey, but played with a ball. That's quite popular in Sweden. Uh, she was a goalkeeper in a bandy team here in Stockholm that was set up by then Crown Princess Margareta. Uh, the team was called... Kronprinsessans hockeylag, the Crown Princess's hockey team, so not the most imaginative of names. Bundy was called hockey at the time, by the way, but since when you say hockey in English, people usually think of field hockey, it's best not to confuse the terms. It was a Bundy team. Yeah, and Swedish sports teams do like very obvious or literal names. <laughs> yeah. Like there's a professional football team or soccer team in the second division in Sweden called Bromma Polkana, yep. which literally means 
the Brommer boys. Yeah. <laughs> Brommer being an area of Stockholm. So you can't imagine that. And we call like the Atlanta dudes or yeah. the London lads. <laughs> They're called the Brommer boys. Yeah. It's just odd. Um, but we should also mention that there was a third Swedish woman participating in 1908, Elna Montgomery Beckman, who came forth in the figure skating event. Sweden would have to wait another four years for its first woman gold medalist, however, but on the other hand, that happened on home territory when Greta Johansson, at the age of just 17, won gold in the diving when the Games were hosted in Stockholm in 1912. So maybe there was a big party she had back at her parents' home after that. I've actually seen a photograph of her from just after she's won, and she looks incredibly stern nothing uh, celebratory at all um maybe she was cold from having uh, dived into the the open sea was it in the open sea yeah wow that's weird we had to wait even longer for our first woman medalist in a separate winter olympics actually that didn't happen until 1936 in garmisch partenkirchen when Vivian Hulten eventually won bronze in figure skating. There's a bit of a theme here with figure skating, isn't there? <laughs> we're, good, we're good at skating in very nice formations. Yeah, I'm not very good at the skiing, though. There must be the Norwegians who are winning <laughs> all of them. <laughs> um, but now, also, as you've said, you've talked about your love of tug-of-war before, so I actually looked into this, and there's a Swedish tug-of-war federation, and from the looks of it, about 30 or so clubs that are active in sweden so it's not extinct just yet well that is very nice to know and i wish all the tug of warers out there the very best sadly though it's no longer an olympic sport which is a shame uh, partly because sweden was quite successful tug of war was an olympic sport from 1900 to 1920 so in five olympic games and sweden won gold twice in 1900, Sweden won gold, but it sort of isn't officially counted by some federations anymore because we competed in a joint Danish-Swedish team. This wasn't because Sweden and Denmark was at all joined constitutionally then, but rather because, like we said, the early Olympics had this strong amateur spirit and wasn't as organized and formalized as the games are today. The Swedish athletes in the tug-of-war team were all at the 1900 Olympics in Paris competing in other events and decided on the spot to join the tug-of-war event. But since there weren't enough of them, they asked a few Danes if they wanted to join in and form a team. And then they won, which is ridiculous. Yeah. You can't imagine that happening today. Usain Bolt and a few British canoeists deciding if they want to try and win at tug of war yeah. or win at hockey. <laughs> it's like, yeah, let's go for it. Why not? I, I, I love that spirit of it all. The Swedes on the team were called Gustav Söderström, who also competed in shot put and discus, so he had probably good arm strength. And then August Nilsson, who competed in pole vault and shot put. Carl Gustav Staff, who was really busy because he competed in hammer throw, pole vault, discus, triple jump and standing triple jump. Wow, that's five separate athletics events plus the tug of war. 
Also, I found a photo of these three tug of war champions and they all have the best moustaches. Proper early 1900s upturned snazzy moustaches. Maybe that was the source of their power because uh, they are described as having beaten the French team easily in the final and thus won Sweden's first ever Olympic medal in a team event. Sadly, they didn't have a chance to defend their gold in the next Olympics because, as we said, Sweden didn't send any athletes to the 1904 Games in St. Louis. Instead, the USA did a clean sweep in that game and won all three medals in tug-of-war. In fact, they were all won by teams from Milwaukee. So quite the local victory there. And this seems to be a theme because a similar thing happened in the next Olympics in London 1908 when the tug-of-war medals were all won by the host nation. Uh, Actually, they were all won by teams from different police districts in the UK. So the City of London Police came first, Liverpool Police came second, and the Metropolitan Police K Division came third. (laughs) Which is ridiculous, because it should only be one team per country, but they've just applied four different teams or so to this, this competition, which is mad. I wonder if different British police uh, divisions still have tug-of-war teams. I have no idea. Sweden actually came fourth in the Games in London, having lost on a walkover in their match for third place. Unfortunately, I couldn't find out why. Maybe they just couldn't be bothered to turn up. Yeah, maybe. Maybe they're busy uh, competing in other events, <laughs> yeah. so they didn't have time. Um, instead, though, they came back with a vengeance and won gold again in 1912, to the delight of the home crowd. And this time, the team consisted of a load of different people, including the anchor of the team, Herbert Big Herbert Lindstrom. He was actually nicknamed that, yeah. Even though he doesn't look that much bigger than the others in the photos I've seen. Just like the winners in London four years earlier, these guys were all policemen in Stockholm. So it seems like tug-of-war was a popular sport for coppers. Uh, The Swedish team beat the GB team in the final, and that was actually the only match of the event, because there were only two teams that had entered. Okay, so one got gold and the other got silver. This was a very like our Olympics today. So if we were just in the crowd and we turned up with some friends, we could compete, lose spectacularly, but still get a bronze medal in the Olympics. I guess so. That is a bit like uh, one of the karate competitions I was in as a kid. I lost my only match and got silver because that was it. That was the final. (laughs) So now on from burly policeman pulling a rope to possibly my favourite person in this whole episode, or not possibly, absolutely, definitely, Oscar Svahn. Yes, Mr. Oscar Svahn. Now, what's so special about him? His excellent beard um, is the best thing about him. Yeah. Another thing is that he competed in the somewhat unusual sport, a sport that's no longer an Olympic event, called shooting running deer. Obviously, there are still shooting events in the Olympics, but the two events that Mr. Svan was so good at, running deer double shot and running deer single shot, unfortunately aren't with us anymore. Now, we should just say that they didn't shoot actual deer, as I first thought, 
but rather they shot at a target in the form of a paper cutout of a deer and got points depending on where they hit it. It's just like you thought that uh, car bingo meant you would drive around a giant field landing on bingo spots instead of just going to a place and playing bingo with other people while sitting in your car. We can't open the door to my misunderstanding of uh, what car bingo was. It's my mother's favorite story to tell. Um, But yeah, I also thought that this uh, running deer shooting event meant they shot actual deer but they did they, they just released wild deer into the stadium and <laughs> he just walked around murdering them what do i know but no they shot at a paper cutout so it's a moving target shooting event and well single and double shot that's pretty self-explanatory and there were individual and team events Shooting, especially shooting moving targets, was very popular in Sweden in the early 1900s, and Sweden was very successful in almost all shooting events in the early Olympics, which historian Krista Isakson, in his book Stockholm 1912, The People, the Sports and Sweden, credits this to the fact that there were so many shooting clubs in the country, and the fact that compulsory military service placed a lot of focus militarily on shooting and target practice. They wanted to make good shooters rather than just giving people guns and say, walk towards the enemy, you might hit something. They actually trained them properly Mm. in how to shoot. And in an era of many successful shooters... Oscar Svahn still stands out. He won an individual and team gold and an individual bronze in 1908. In 1912, he won an individual gold and an individual bronze. And in 1920, he won a team silver. So three golds, one silver and a bronze, a clean sweep. And that's actually a pretty great record of medals in general. But what makes it extraordinary is that he was born on the 20th of October 1847, making him 60 years old when he won his first Olympic gold, and 72 years old when he won his last medal, the silver, in 1920. And most importantly, he was 64 years and 258 days old when he won his last gold medal, making him the oldest gold medalist ever in the Olympics. I mean, a 72-year-old Olympic medalist. Uh, can you imagine that? And 64 years old and you win a gold. That's so cool. And like you said, in all the photos, he looks like a proper old man as well. He has this long Santa Claus-type beard and a hat. Uh, he is often credited as the world's oldest olympic medalist or even oldest person to compete in general yeah his beard is huge um is an excellent picture of him and you can just imagine uh well he was already a granddad so he said oh granddad what did you do last week oh i've won a gold medal in the olympics you know (laughs) casual now going home to eat my porridge Swan was actually set to go to the 1924 Olympics as well (laughs) when he would have been 77 years old but sadly he had to decline due to illness Uh, he lived another three years though and died aged 80 on the 1st of May 1927 before getting a second career in his later years as an Olympian, he had been a chief accountant at the Swedish news agency TT, which is still around today. It's a bit like 
Reuters, but nationally here in Sweden. Oscar Swan seems to have passed his good shooter genes onto his son, Alfred Swan, who in terms of number of medals actually outclassed his dad. Alfred won three gold medals, three silver and three bronze in Olympic Games between 1908 and 1924. I love the symmetry of three of each uh, little family of medals that he has. One of his golds and one of his silvers, he actually won with his dad. (laughs) And they were both in the team that won gold in Stockholm 1912 and silver in Antwerp 1920, which is just brilliant. But sadly, Alfred didn't have a career that lasted into old age the way his dad had. He could have won 20 yeah. more if he lived that long. But unfortunately, he didn't compete in the 1928 Olympics, and we don't know why. But he did die in 1931, aged only 52. So maybe it was health-related. I love we say only 52 for mm. someone winning Olympic medals. Um, but... Either way, Alfred Svon is joint top for the most medals won by a Swedish athlete at an Olympics, or at least, like we said at the time of the recording, as one of the people he is tied with is Charlotte Kalla, a cross-country skier who is at this very moment in Beijing competing at the Olympics in 2022. Kalla has three golds and six silver, and they are both tied with Sixten Yerbe, another cross-country skier, this time from 1956, 1960, and 1964, where he won four golds, three silver, and two bronze. So if you only count summer games, though, Alfred Svahn is top for most medals won. Just for completion's sake, Gert Fredriksson is the man top of the table if you only count gold medals. He has a whopping six golds, one silver and one bronze in canoe sports, taking part in London in 1948, Helsinki in 52 and Stockholm, Melbourne in 56 and Rome 1960. Uh, Actually, that's another fun fact. I said Stockholm, Melbourne in 1956. The equestrian events in 1956 were held in Stockholm, even though the Olympics was held in Melbourne, because of the extremely strict animal quarantine rules in Australia. They wouldn't allow the horses in, making the equestrian events quite difficult. I mean, it's <laughs> it's silly if it's just people running around jumping over fences with no horses dancing to music (laughs) yeah so uh, instead the equestrian events took place in sweden five months before the games themselves continuing on a more somber note sweden is unfortunately also associated with a very sad first in olympic history namely the first death of an athlete during the games Again, we're back to the Olympic Games here in Stockholm in 1912. By the way, we will most likely do an entire episode dedicated to those games, either as another special or just in the timeline when we eventually get to it. Because there is so much to say, both about the event itself and about early Swedish sports, Uh, but for now, we're just doing standalone snippets from the event rather than covering it as a whole. Yes, and just like you said, the Games in Stockholm did sadly see the first death of a competing athlete during the Games. The Games in Stockholm were nicknamed the Sunshine Olympics in the press at the time, thanks to the lovely Swedish summer weather. 
However, when it came to the marathon, the sunshine and heat instead caused serious problems. On the day of the run, the 14th of July, it was more than 30 degrees Celsius and burning sunshine. And bear in mind that this is 110 years ago, so the runners didn't have the kind of shoes we do today, nor the knowledge about the importance of staying hydrated, what to drink and what to eat. Someone probably had a pint and a steak before the race, like they used to do playing football in the UK in the 70s, so even 60 years before that. Quite a lot of them stayed hydrated on beer and brandy, so um, yeah, they didn't compete in the same conditions that marathon runners do today. And therefore, quite unsurprisingly, only half of the 68 runners who started the race managed to finish it. Francisco Lazaro, 32 years old from Benfica in Lisbon, collapsed with 8 kilometres to go and was simply unable to get up. He was taken to a hospital in central Stockholm where he died in the early hours of the following day. The cause of death was determined to be heat stroke and an electrolyte imbalance. Five days after the Games finished, the Swedish organisers arranged a concert at the Olympic Stadium and asked for donations to send money to Lazaro's family, which was done. Lazaro was the first athlete to die during the Olympics and, I suppose fortunately, he hasn't had too many followers. A Danish cyclist, Knud Enemark Jensen, died during a race in the 1960s game in Tokyo and there have been four deaths during the Winter Olympics, all during practice at the Olympic site but before the actual competition. And three horses have had to be put down following accidents sustained in equestrian events. Now, to not end on too gloomy a note, how about we finish this episode with a fun story from the 1912 Games in Stockholm? Yes, and I know this is a bit of a favourite trivia story of yours, and I actually asked my brother, who uh, is a runner and runs marathons, uh, if he knew this story, and he actually knew of it before I even told him. So uh, if there are any runners out there, people who listen to this, especially when running, they might have heard of this story, because it is hilarious. Yeah, and I think it's just so random and quite sweet. It takes place during this ill-fated marathon race, Shitsu Kanaguri was a Japanese runner and geography teacher who had had quite the journey to get to Stockholm. It had taken him three weeks to travel by steamboat and then on the Trans-Siberian Railway. Once he got to Stockholm, he struggled to sleep because of the noisy trams outside his hotel room and he couldn't find any rice to have with his food in Stockholm. And I can imagine that going from a traditional Japanese diet to Swedish cooking 1912 style must have been quite a shock to your system. Yeah, like we said, I don't know if uh, eating rye bread, herring and vodka for the very first time in your life is the best food to eat when you're about to run a marathon. Or, or, or just... That, ever. ever. Well, it's it's a very... I'm very fond of all those three things. But, but not when running a marathon. N- no, exactly. Uh, Kanaguri felt in pretty good shape, though, but was then hit by the same incredible heat as the other runners during the day of the marathon. 
pretty much bang on halfway into the race at the point where the course turned to go back in Rotebro in the northern suburbs of Stockholm Kanaguri felt faint and incredibly thirsty and decided to quit the race there weren't any organizers or officials around though to help him uh, instead he found himself just standing in the street outside a house where a family was enjoying some coffee and cake in the garden. They invited him in and gave him raspberry squash and some buns, uh, which I think is so sweet. Just a lonely ra- Japanese runner in a suburban garden of Stockholm and being given some raspberry squash. Uh, he rested a bit uh, on their sofa and then they gave him directions for which commuter train to get to get back to the city centre. And some sources say he might have felt a bit ashamed about having to quit the race. Uh, we're not sure exactly. But for some reason, he never went and spoke to any of the officials. He just went to his hotel, packed his bag and went back home to Japan. And it quickly became a story in the press in Sweden and gradually made its way into the popular imagination. And Kanaguri became known as Japan and Sonfosvan, the Japanese man who had disappeared. And probably played on the fact that he was a geography teacher and couldn't find his way around or something like that. Maybe. Now, had the Swedes paid better attention, though, they would have rediscovered him when Kanaguri competed in Antwerp four years later. But for some reason, that seemed to have slipped people by. Instead, this legend of the Japanese man who disappeared remained and in the early 60s Swedish sport journalist Oskar Söderlund tracked down Kanaguri who was by then retired and living in Kumamoto in southern Japan. As a bit of fun Kanaguri was invited back to Stockholm for the 55th anniversary of the Olympics in 1967 and asked if he wanted to finish the race and he said yes. And so at the age of 76 actually making him the oldest uh, Olympian yeah. if you count by finishing time he finished the race with a time of 54 years 8 months 6 days 8 hours 32 minutes and 20.3 seconds. Which I think is just so great. And I found an old uh, newsreel video of when this happened. And he's just this little old man in his uh, in his overcoat. And he runs into the stadium, the same stadium that was built in 1912. And he's he just looks so happy. And I'm so glad considering everything that happened in the world between 1912 and 1967 that Mr. Kanaguri was still around and still game to come back to Stockholm. I mean, what good sport. Uh, I hope that by then they had sorted out better food for him as well. Um, He is often credited, albeit not in any official way, as having the record for the longest ever time to complete a marathon. But I guess he probably didn't actually complete it, though, because he didn't run the whole half of the marathon he didn't do. They just dropped him off at the stadium and let him walk up to the finish line. Yeah. That's cheating. But he's 76. Yeah, well, fair enough. But yeah, so if you ever complain that your marathon time is a bit slow, (laughs) it's not 54 years slow. So you beat one person. 
at which, least. Which is also like a hopeful, optimistic thought to, to have when we go out running. We should all remember Mr. Kanaguri and, uh, you know, that it's never too late to finish what you started. Speaking of finishing what we started, we should probably end this episode and try and uh, finish the story of Magnus, which uh, is going to take another half dozen episodes probably but we should get back to it next week in the regular episodes and if you've got any fun or interesting stories about people or events from early olympics in your country and you want to share them let us know get in touch with our email on flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com message us on facebook or twitter do loads of stuff send us a carrier pigeon or via a japanese geography teacher who might get lost and have cake in our garden no that would be if you have similar stories to uh, to these that we've talked about today from your home country it would be lovely to share them and of course you can always message us about anything else you'd like to get in touch about and don't forget to check out our website a flatpackhistoryofsweden.com and until next time take care bye bye adios hey do oh sayonara